Well, if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 10, we are going to continue in our series in John's gospel next Sunday, Christmas Eve. I'll be preaching on the incarnation and in the morning and we'll be having a, our normal Christmas Eve service that evening. Sam will be teaching on it then, on the incarnation again. But this morning we're going to continue in John And we're in John chapter 10, verses 19 through 42. And so let's begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. John 10, 19 through 42. This is God's holy word. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Jesus, the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but... He escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. When we read accounts... uh, of the four Gospels in the New Testament, it's important to keep one thing in mind. These books are all about Jesus. They are accounts of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They each proclaim the good news about who he is and what he came to do. They boldly assert that Jesus is the divine Son of God who entered into the world as a man so that he might be the messianic king and savior that was promised in the Old Testament. 
That's their main point. And their main purpose is to convince everyone who reads them to believe in Jesus and to become his follower, his disciple, so that they might be forgiven of their sins and received the gift of eternal life and fellowship with God. But in the process of doing this in the Gospels, the, the, the writers of the Gospels had to answer some difficult questions that might arise uh, by those who read them. One of them was this. If Jesus is the divine Son of God who entered into the world as a man to be the messianic king promised in the Old Testament, why did so many of his fellow Jews not believe in him? In other words, why should we believe the remarkable claims that the gospel writers make about Jesus when so many people in his own day did not? This question has the potential of being a significant hindrance to people believing what the gospels say about Jesus. And that's why you see the authors of these books addressing that question head on. I believe this is the major thrust of the passage we've come to this morning in John 10. So let's begin by first walking through this passage together, and then I'm going to seek to show you how its four major points of emphasis provide an answer to that important question. So first, let's walk through the passage together. And I want you to remember that in the first part of chapter 10, we're starting in verse 19, but in the first 18 verses, Jesus was still in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. And during that time, the Jewish leaders had tried to arrest him. They wanted to put him to death. So in chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, leading up to our text, Jesus condemned the Jewish leaders as bad shepherds who neglected, who abused the flock. And he claimed to be the good shepherd who would sacrifice himself to save God's people, who would lead them into abundant life. Now, I pointed out that in saying that, Jesus was also clearly claiming to fulfill the promise of Ezekiel 34, where God had said in verses 23 through 24 that he would raise up the Christ, an ultimate Davidic king, to be the good shepherd of his people. Now we come to verse 19, verses 19 through 21, these first three verses of our text, and we are told how the people responded to those remarkable claims that Jesus made in the first part of the chapter. And look at what it says. It says in verses 19 through 21, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jesus had put the Jews in a dilemma. He had performed an undeniable miracle uh, earlier in his time there, healing a man who had been born blind. He had made 
an audacious claim to be this messianic figure foretold in Ezekiel 34 who is the rightful shepherd of God's people. What were they to make of this? Some believed that these kinds of claims were so outrageous, they have to be false. And so they concluded that he was a madman. He was possessed by a demon. Others observed that his words, while certainly astonishing, were perfectly sane. And then you had his miraculous healing. Was that something that a demon could or would do? And you see, there really wasn't a whole lot of middle ground between these two assessments. Jesus' words and his actions were such that it really didn't permit neutrality with respect to him. Then in verse 22, we're taken forward in time to the Feast of Dedication. Now that feast is called Hanukkah. It took place in the winter time, not always on the same day, but sometime between late November and early December in our calendar. And this festival, it's not one of the festivals sanctioned in the Old Covenant law. It's a festival that arose in Israel much later, in the intertestamental period, the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And it was intended to celebrate the rededication of the temple uh, in 164 BC under the leader, the leadership of Judas Maccabeus, after it had been desecrated by the wicked Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes in 167 BC. So apparently Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem for this eight-day feast, the Feast of Dedication. And verse 23 describes a day when he was, quote, walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So this is the great uh, second temple rebuilt under Herod. And there was on the east side of the temple this covered walkway that stretched along the east side. If you Google it, don't do it now, but if you Google it, you'll see a rendering of it. It was called a colonnade because it was a, a roofed, a place supported by hundreds of columns. Now, the scene has changed uh, to a different time and a different place, um, but the subject that had been introduced in verses 19 through 20, 21, while Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, the subject is picked up again here. Different time, different place, different feast. And this subject, introduced in verses 19 through 21, remains the focus of our attention for the rest of the chapter, verses 22 through 42. Namely, the subject is the response of the Jews to Jesus. And in this first part of this part of the text, the spotlight is now focused upon the Jews who rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Those who believed he was a madman, perhaps possessed by a demon. So in verse 24 it says, The Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now when you read the context 
it makes clear that these Jews are not genuinely curious about whether Jesus was the Messiah. That's not why they were asking. It seems rather that they just wanted to force Jesus to make an unambiguous public claim to be the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, so that they could then use that claim as a basis to move against him at this feast. But Jesus, of course, refused to walk into their trap. Now, he didn't deny that he was the Christ, and there were circumstances when he would openly affirm that he was. You think back in chapter 4, when he's there with the Samaritan woman at the well, and she says, when the Christ comes, he'll clear these things up, and he says, I'm him. But to these Jews who had malicious motives, he simply said in verse 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, Jesus had already made clear to them that he was the Christ. He'd done so in various ways. And his miraculous works that he had been performing confirmed that he was telling the truth. But they had refused to believe in him. And his telling them again now, in a more public and unambiguous way, wasn't going to change their unbelief. So next, Jesus went on to explain why they didn't believe in him, despite all the testimony of his miracles. Right. So here is that question I posed at the beginning. Why did so many of Jesus' fellow Jews not believe in him if he truly was who the gospels say he was? Well, he said in verses 26 and 27, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now, it's important that we interpret this correctly. The sheep that Jesus is talking about here cannot be reduced down simply to those who were already his disciples who had already put their faith in him and become part of this community of his disciples. They were his sheep, but his sheep weren't limited to just those because there were also people that he would describe as his sheep whom he had not yet called to himself. So back in verse 16 of this chapter, if you look there, you'll see how he talks about them. He says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So the sheep Jesus is talking about are a group of people out of a larger group of fallen human beings whom the Father had given to Jesus to call to himself, to save. And he describes them this way, Back in chapter 6, verse 37, you remember how he'd already talked about them. He'd said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So the sheep in chapter 10 are those whom the Father would give to him. Back in chapter 6. And again in chapter 6, verse 39, he says again, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
The sheep are those whom the Father gave to the Son to call to himself and to give eternal life. In other words, the sheep Jesus is talking about in our text, chapter 10, verses 26 through 27, are who you might call in other parts of Scripture the elect. That is, those human beings whom God the Father had chosen to save through his Son, Jesus Christ. And in fact, that choice of them was made even before the foundation of the world, as we see in other texts of Scripture. Here, in verses 26 through 27, Jesus says that one of the things that characterizes these sheep, the elect, whom the Father had given him to save, is that these sheep will recognize his voice when he calls to them. That is, when they hear him calling to them in the gospel. And they would come to him in faith. And they would begin to follow him as his disciple. As he put it, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And this ability was not something that the sheep had by nature. It was a gift given to them by God precisely because they were his sheep. So Jesus put it this way back in chapter 6 verse 44. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I think we can assume that God draws the sheep. He enables them to recognize the voice of their shepherd in Jesus and to come to him in faith through the regenerating work of the Spirit in their heart. It's a result of that new birth which Jesus described back in chapter 3, verse 3, when he told the Pharisee Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, Jesus explained the reason that these Jews didn't believe in him when they heard his words, when they saw his miraculous works. It was that they were not his sheep. They were not among those whom the Father had given him to save. And so, they had not been born of the Spirit. And since they were not born of the Spirit, they did not recognize his voice and would not come to him as their shepherd. Then in verses 28 through 30, Jesus went on to explain that these unbelieving Jews, what they were missing because of their unbelief. He describes in these glorious verses the eternal security that his sheep enjoy when they respond to his voice in faith and when they begin to follow him. He said this of his sheep. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, he is greater than all and no one will snatch, be able to snatch them out of his, the father's hand. The implication is clear, isn't it? Just as all his sheep would respond to his voice and come to him, so he would in turn not lose any of them but he would keep them perfectly safe forever. He would give them eternal life and they would never perish. 
The reason he could guarantee the eternal security of his sheep was because God his Father and him would join in protecting them. And since God, he says, is greater than all, no one in heaven or earth, whether man or demon, had the ability to snatch the sheep from Jesus' hand. The sheep, when they come to Christ in faith and begin following him, have God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, as their shepherd. They are perfectly and permanently secure. Nothing will happen to them that is not permitted by their divine keeper. But then Jesus added this shocking little phrase in verse 30. He said, I and the Father are one. Now he clearly did not mean that they were one person, as if the Father just presented himself as the Father sometimes and then put on the sun mask in other times. But it's really the same person behind him. No, Jesus was constantly relating to God the Father as a distinct person who was there simultaneously with himself, whom he related to throughout the Gospels. When he says, I and the Father are one, he's not saying we're one person. Now it's possible when he says, I and the Father are one, that he could simply be saying that they were one will, one in will, one in action. After all, he had just been describing how he would protect the sheep so that no one would snatch them out of his hand and then immediately said that his father would do the same thing. We're one, one in will, one in action. But then again, this implies a more fundamental unity because how could Jesus and the father do the same works if they don't have the same abilities, the same power and authority, the same nature. In other words, how could Jesus do the works of God the Father unless he is also God? And this meant, of course, that Jesus' claim to be one with the Father, to do the same works as the Father, was nothing less than a claim to be equal with God the Father. Do you remember what happened back in chapter 5 of this book where Jesus claimed to do the works of his father there? He said in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. And then he spelled out what this meant. In verses 19 through 29 in chapter 5, he said things like this, for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Can you imagine saying that? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. The Jews heard him say these things, and they understood that, as the text says, Jesus was making himself equal with God. And this is why they started seeking to put him to death. Because they considered him a blasphemer. 
And that is exactly how the Jews responded to Jesus' words here in John 10, 28-30. After hearing Jesus claim to give eternal security to his people alongside the Father and then say to them, I and the Father are one, it says in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They were ready to put Jesus to death immediately. Just as we saw that they had been back in chapter 8, verse 59, when he had said, before Abraham was, I am. But this time, Jesus didn't leave immediately. Instead, he decided to continue interacting with the Jews in order to expose that their judgment of him was wrong. We read the first stage of this interaction there in verses 32 and 33. Look again, it says, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Notice the irony in this interchange. The Jews claimed that they weren't stoning Jesus for his works, but because his claims about himself were blasphemous. What they failed to see was that his works proved that his claims about himself were true and therefore were not blasphemous. Though he was a man, yes, yet he was also God. Though he had existed beforehand as God, he had taken on a human nature and entered into the world as a man. As John had put it back in the first verses of of this book, John chapter 1 verse 1 and then verse 14, he'd said this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The Jews, however, were willfully blind to this fact. All they saw in Jesus was a man who was blaspheming by making himself equal with God. What they failed to see in Jesus was God the Son, who had made himself nothing by taking the form of a man. And so, ironically, one whom they should have worshipped as Lord, they wanted to kill as a demonically empowered madman who was uttering blasphemy. In verses 34 through 36, Jesus responded to the Jews' explanation that they were stoning him for blasphemy because he, being a man, made himself God. And his response is a bit of a mind bender. He said this, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? That's a citation. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. 
Now, let me first say that I think his argument here is actually fairly straightforward. They had accused him of blasphemy because he, though a man, made himself God. So Jesus pointed out that in their own scriptures, which they both agreed could not be violated, there is a place, Psalm 82, verse 6, where Israel's princes, mere men, are called gods. And then Jesus argued, if the scripture can tell, call Israel's princes gods, then why is it blasphemy for God's anointed one, whom he consecrated and set apart into the world to call himself the son of God? Okay, Jesus' argument is fairly clear, isn't it? His point is a little more difficult. He clearly wasn't saying, hey, listen, guys, I'm only claiming to be a god in the sense that Israel's princes are called gods in Psalm 82.6. Nor was he saying, I never said I was God, but only the Son of God. I think, rather, that Jesus was pointing out how Essentially, the Jews hadn't really thought this through very well. They saw a man claiming to be, claiming divine prerogatives for himself, and they assumed, he's a man, this must be blasphemous. But it wasn't as simple as that. They hadn't reckoned with the complexity of the issue. They hadn't considered passages like Psalm 82, verse 6, where Scripture calls men gods. And more than that, they hadn't reckoned with who he really was, the pre-existent one, whom the Father consecrated, he says, and sent into the world. So their charge of blasphemy, in other words, reflected a deficiency in their own reasoning rather than anything inappropriate in Jesus. I think that's his main point. Finally, Jesus said to the Jews in verses 37 through 38, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So here Jesus pointed out that the claims he was making about himself, about his own identity, they weren't coming in a vacuum. He was backing them up with miraculous works. Yes, it is true. Jesus claimed to be the only begotten Son of God who shared his Father's divine power and authority and made that clear in many ways. But then he proved it by healing the sick and the lame, opening the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, casting out demons and freeing those oppressed by them, changing water into wine, multiplying bread and fish to feed 5,000 people, stilling the wind and the waves of the sea with a word of command. In other words, Jesus didn't just claim to be able to do the works of God. He actually did them before the eyes of multitudes of people, including these skeptical Jews. See, his point is they have no excuse 
for not believing his claims about himself, all of the evidence they could have wanted was there. All they had to do was accept it. But so far, they hadn't. Instead, they had opted to accuse him of being empowered by a demon and wrote off his claims as the ravings of a madman. They accused Jesus of blasphemy, but they were the ones committing blasphemy, speaking against the divine Son of God. Verses 39-42 bring this scene to a somewhat interesting conclusion. There we read again. They sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and he said, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So just like the last time that the Jews had picked up stones to throw at Jesus, back in chapter 8, somehow here again, Jesus eludes their grasp. And we're not told whether he did that by some kind of supernatural means or by just a mere natural means. But we do know that it was because they would not be allowed to take his life until he laid it down of his own accord. Then, probably in order to avoid the Jewish leaders for a while, Jesus left the region of Judea and crossed over the Jordan River into a region beyond the Jordan called Perea at the time. It was actually the place, John the Apostle tells us, it's the place where John the Baptist had ministered before his arrest and execution. And so it's not surprising that the people in this place talked about John the Baptist. And interestingly, the text tells us that many people in this region remembered the things that John the Baptist had said about Jesus, and they believed it, even though John had never performed any miracles to confirm what he was saying. So you see, the author, I think, is clearly contrasting the willingness of these Jews who lived beyond the Jordan to believe in Jesus on the basis of John's mere testimony, while the Jews in Judea, in Israel, were unwilling to believe in Jesus' claims, despite the clear testimony of all the mighty works that he had done there. Well, having walked through the passage, let me just show you how I think it's four main points of emphasis provide an answer to the question that we consider at the beginning of why so many Jews, so many of Jesus' own people did not believe in him in his own day. The first, and I think primary emphasis of the passage, is the identity of Jesus. When they asked him whether he was the Christ, in verse 24, as he claimed, in verses 1 through 18 of this chapter, he implicitly confirmed it. Verse 25, he says, I told you, and you do not believe. Then in verses 28 through 30, he claimed to be able to give eternal security to his sheep, just like God the Father, for he and the Father are one. 
The Jews understood this to be a claim to deity in verse 33. And he didn't deny it. Instead, he simply rebuked them for refusing to believe it, despite all the miracles he'd done to prove it. And this, of course, is the main point of the entire book. The Gospel of John is not a handbook for personal morality. It's not a collection of inspirational devotional stories. It's not a source for deriving social or political theory. It is fundamentally an historical record of Jesus' life and ministry compiled by one of his disciples who was an eyewitness to it. And its purpose is to convince the readers of this book that Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God who entered into the world as a man to become the Messiah promised in the Old Testament so that the readers might believe in him and receive the gift of eternal salvation and life. This is what John the Apostle who wrote this book goes on to say at the very end of the book in chapter 20 verse 31. He says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everyone in this room has to reckon with the fact that as we read and study this book together, even this morning, this is the claim it's making. So the question is, will you believe it or will you reject it? What side of this division that we see in our chapter will you be on? This book is good news to every sinner who will listen. Because the scripture says that we are God's creatures made in his image. We live in God's world. We are accountable to God for our lives. But we are a fallen race. We have rebelled against our creator from the beginning. So that guilt and corruption hangs over all of us. And a day of judgment is coming when we will receive from God the just punishment that we deserve for our sins, unless we are saved beforehand. And what the Gospel of John tells us is that the very God we have offended by our own sin, whose just judgment hangs over our heads like a dark cloud, has had compassion upon us in our wretched condition. And he has sent his eternal beloved son into the world as a man Jesus Christ as one of us to accomplish salvation for everyone who will repent and believe in him and he accomplished this salvation for all who believe by first of all living a perfectly righteous human life on their behalf doing what they could not do and then taking their sins upon himself and dying for them in their place paying the penalty on their behalf and then rising again to secure for them eternal life with him. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Word become flesh is the Savior we all need. And he will indeed save any sinner, no matter what you have done, freely and graciously, whoever will simply come to him in faith trusting in what he has done for them instead of in their own works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So if you haven't done so yet, come to Jesus this morning. Pray to him right where you sit. Rely upon him. Cast yourself upon him. Trust yourself to him to save you from your sins by his grace. And he will gladly do it. The second point of emphasis in this passage is that Jesus has provided plenty of evidence that he is who he claims to be through his works, his miracles. The Gospels provide an eyewitness testimony. In other words, the people who wrote these books were his disciples. They'd lived with him for three years. They'd seen these things firsthand. And they are telling us of all the many miracles that he performed in their presence. He showed his power over nature. He changed water into wine. He caused fish of the sea to swim into the nets of his disciples. He walked upon the water. He multiplied food. He stilled the winds and the waves with a word. He reversed the effects of the curse. He healed people from every disease. He made lame limbs whole, blind eyes to see, deaf ears to be opened. He even raised people from the dead. He liberated people from the power of Satan by commanding demons to leave them permanently and restoring them to soundness of mind and body. And he did all of this by his own authority instead of praying for God to do it. So if you haven't done so, just read the four Gospels and you'll see all of that for yourself. And the point of all of these miracles that Jesus performed in the sight of many witnesses which have been testified to in the New Testament, the point is to confirm that He was telling the truth when he claimed to be the divine son of God, the Christ. You know, it'd be one thing if Jesus made claims about himself like we read in our passage. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. I and the father are one. Well, you can make those claims if he hadn't done any miracles to back them up. Well, then... It might have been sensible for the Jews to say in verse 20, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And to want to stone him for blasphemy even. In verse 31, such claims would be insane and blasphemous if they weren't true. But the point is, Jesus did many miracles to back his claims up. As he told the Jews in verse 25. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And again, verses 37 through 38. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. In light of this, one has to begin to question why so many Jews in his day, did not believe in him. How could they not believe the claims of one who was doing such things? That becomes the question for anyone who reads this book. It's the question which faces us today as we read it. 
unless you're going to dismiss the gospel of John, you're going to dismiss the other New Testament gospels as just entirely untrue, which I think shows that you haven't really reckoned with the credibility of these books as historical documents, then you have to reckon with what they say about Jesus' miracles. If he really did the things the gospels say he did, then why would people not believe what he said about himself? What better evidence could you ask for that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who's worthy of your trust and obedience? And for us who have believed in Jesus, like the people described in verse 42, let this be a reminder to us that our faith is not some leap in the dark with no rational or empirical grounds as it is often claimed, even by some Christians, unfortunately. Quite the contrary. It's perfectly rational to believe that a man who did the works that Jesus did is truly the Son of God as he claimed to be. By the way, it's also a pretty good evidence, explanation for why this man has changed the whole course of human history like no other man has. Something must have happened. It's not our faith in Jesus. It's others' refusal to believe in him, which lacks a good explanation, I think. And that brings us to the third point of emphasis in this passage, namely the reason people don't believe in Jesus. It's not because there isn't good ground to believe in him, but because, as Jesus put it, they are not his sheep. They are not among those whom the Father has given him to save. If they were, they would have recognized his voice when he called to them, and they would have followed him in faith. Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. This is what theologians call the doctrine of unconditional election. It says that the ultimate explanation, oh there are many other explanations as as well, but the ultimate explanation for why some believe in him and are saved and others are lost is the sovereign choice of God. He chooses to save some and to leave others in their state of spiritual death. It's his gracious purpose. Apart from anything he sees in us. And it's because of this choice of God in eternity that some believe in Christ in time and space. You see this all over scripture. Jesus said back in John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Later on in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, verse 6, he said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Acts 13, 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Romans 11.7, the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And I could go on and on. Yes, it is true. 
We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But the point here is that the reason anyone does believe is ultimately traced back to God's gracious choice of them for salvation, even in eternity past. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. He chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Indeed, in our natural condition, not a single one of us would have ever believed in Jesus. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It's only if God has chosen to save a person and therefore sends his Spirit to regenerate their hearts that they will believe in Jesus. This is why Paul said in Philippians 1.29, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Our faith itself is a gift. Now, this truth is not to discourage any unbeliever from responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ in faith, as if you could somehow say, well, I guess I can't do anything. It's all up to God. That's not what the doctrine of unconditional election means. Every human being is called, indeed commanded, to repent and believe in Jesus for salvation and to begin following him as Lord. Don't worry about whether you are elect. That is not for you to know or worry about. Just listen to the gospel call and come. Don't wait. Come today. But this doctrine that we see reflected in John chapter 10, of unconditional election. It's intended for us who are believers, who are Christians, who have come to faith in Christ to understand why we did so. Lest we think that it was ultimately because we were better or smarter than others. We have to recognize that our faith was a gift which God, which indicates God's choice of us for salvation before time began. And we should humbly thank him and praise him for it. We don't take any credit to ourselves. It's all of grace. It also explains to Christians why others do not believe. Lest we foolishly think that the unbelief of so many around us indicates there must be something wrong with this gospel thing. Lest we lose confidence in the truth of the gospel because so many people reject it. We've got to tweak this thing and make it more appealing. Listen, many of the greatest people in history, the smartest, the most gifted, have rejected Jesus' words. And he says, just like the Jews who saw his miracles and rejected him, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So we're just simply called to proclaim the gospel to all people without being ashamed of it, confident of its truth and power, knowing God will enable his sheep to believe it. And many great men and women of the world will not believe. Not because the gospel isn't credible, but because they are not his sheep. You remember how Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, he said, For consider your calling, brothers, 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So just preach and pray and don't be discouraged by who does or doesn't believe. That is up to the sovereign choice of God. Finally, fourth, briefly. Another point of emphasis of this passage is the eternal security of God's people. And by this I mean those whom God the Father has given to the Son to save so that when they hear his call in the gospel, they come to him. Those will never be lost. As Jesus put it in verses 27 to 28, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Just let those words sink in, believer. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. As Paul put it in Romans 8, those whom God has predestined will be finally glorified so that nothing will separate them from the love of Christ. Or as Paul put it to the Christians in Ephesians 1, he said, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So as the good shepherd, Jesus is not going to lose a single one of the sheep that his father has given him, but he will make certain that they are safe forever. As he put it in John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The sheep of Jesus, once they hear his voice, once they come to him, they are eternally secure. Now, this does not mean that, well, then I can just sin how all I want and I don't have anything to worry about. A true sheep won't do that. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Nor does it mean that someone who once professed faith in Christ and was a part of the church, might not, at a later time, fall away and be lost. That might happen. It's just that when that happens, a person is simply proving that they never were truly one of Christ's sheep in the first place, but were, in fact, sadly, a wolf dressed up in sheep's clothing all along. This is what John explained in John, 1 John 2.19. They, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. And let us who are the sheep of Christ, who have heard his voice in the gospel, who have begun following him, let us rest assured he's going to keep our souls forever. You may be afflicted by various trials and tribulations. You may be gripped at times with doubt and despair. You may battle with sin and lethargy. But none of those things, indeed, nothing else in all creation, will be able to separate you 
from the love of God in Christ. He has sealed you with his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance. His power is protecting your faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He has committed himself to raising you up on the last day because it's the will of his Father. The security of your soul, believer, listen to this, doesn't depend ultimately on you, but on your shepherd. And therefore, you're safe forever. So look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and keep pressing on with a certain hope that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, as it says in Philippians 1.6. You remember that question I posed at the beginning? If Jesus is the divine son of God who entered into the world as a man to be the messianic king promised in the Old Testament, why did so many of his fellow Jews not believe in him? That's an important question. It has the, ten- the potential of being a hindrance to many people believing the gospel. That's why the gospel writers address it head on. And our text is an example. Here the apostle explained why. It wasn't because there wasn't good reason to believe in Jesus. He provided abundant evidence through his many miracles. But Jesus summed it up, verses 26 and 27. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. The problem is with man's rebellious heart. And only God can make the difference. So then, as Paul put it in Romans 9.16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we just put our hands over our mouth and we give him praise that he has given us to the Son to save according to his own purpose to show mercy to us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text and this book that we've been studying. We thank you for your word, which is so good and true and right. We thank you for these gatherings together where we can listen to your word, preach, sing songs of praise to you, pray together, fellowship with one another. We pray that you would bless our time this morning, that you would nourish and strengthen our souls through all of it that we might be able to follow Christ with greater faithfulness, have a greater love and devotion to him within the new covenant, and that we might, Lord, encourage one another to do the same. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.